This is For the Sake of, a podcast by the Society of the Sacred Heart in the United States and Canada. It's about faith, life, and what it all means. I'm your host, Sister Kim King. Welcome to Season 2 of For the Sake of. So much seems the same as we are recording now. The need for mic checks, the nerves about questions, clarity of speech, and what will I do if... And yet, the world is different, and everyone knows it. Since you last heard from us, Over a million people have died from COVID-19, and millions have mobilized around the world in the name of ending pervasive systemic racism. Many of us have explored new ways of maintaining relationships, finding consolation in our grief, or looking for help in navigating unexpected hardships. Our hope is that in the midst of it all, the stories, the conversations that happen here will help you, will help us all, to make sense of faith, life, and what it all means. We begin Season 2 with a series of conversations with members of the Society of the Sacred Heart United States-Canada Provinces Anti-Racism Committee. Each person has a unique relationship to the society and unique perspective on this important work. This first episode features my conversation with Mary Charlene Rhodes. Mary is an alumna of the Academy of the Sacred Heart in Grand-Coteau, Louisiana, she shares her story of coming to know the Society of the Sacred Heart, the formative role the Grand Coteau community as a whole played in her life, and the events in recent years that led her to uncover a deeper part of her own story and reconnect with the Society. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Mary Charlene Rhodes, to our podcast, For the Sake of. I am so glad that you agreed to be on our podcast. So welcome. Thank you very much, Kim. I wonder if you could begin by how you first got to know the Society of the Sacred Heart and its mission. At the age of about 10 years old, I attended Grand Coteau, the Academy of the Sacred Heart in Grand Coteau. I think it was around 1969 uh, when integration was occurring in the South, in particular Louisiana. And my mother was looking for an option for me to continue my Catholic education. The Catholic school, St. Peter Claver, that I had attended or was attending was being shut down and most of the kids in that Catholic school were offered 
public school for their middle education. So I could attend the public school uh, for two years before having to be bused to a town nearby. But in all cases, the option was public school. Until I reached high school, then I could return to Catholic high school for blacks. My mother worked for the Jesuits, uh, and as a result of her work, she found out that they were looking for kids, in particular African-American kids, to attend the Academy of the Sacred Heart School in Grand Coteau. And so I was tested and scored well enough to the point where I could be accepted into the school. And so that was, for the most part, my in. My mother worked for the Jesuits. I was in the age group that they were looking for to attend the school. And I was a pretty decent student. I had decent grades. I would probably say I was one of the top kids in my class. And so as a result, I was allowed to take the examination and I scored high enough to apply for a scholarship. For our listeners who haven't been to Southern Louisiana and particularly to Grancato, could you describe a little bit what the town is like? The makeup, the population, that kind of thing. The town is about 1,200 uh, people. And the largest industry is the Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, the Sacred Heart School was a girls' school uh, where the property was actually donated so that they could come in, build a school for young women in that area. So it's a country town. Uh, there's only one stoplight and maybe two grocery stores. Okay. Um, and the school is in, located in on the outskirts of the town, located in St. Landry Parish. Uh, and at the time, uh, St. Landry Parish was probably, um, the parish is like a county in most states, and it operated out of Opelousas. Um, most of the girls that went to school there were generally uh, bussed in or drove in from Opelousas and Lafayette. Hmm. And Grand Coteau resides between the two larger cities or towns. And it was in sixth grade, seventh grade? It was sixth grade. Sixth grade. Um, before that, where were you in school? I went to uh, the Catholic school that was predominantly uh, black for blacks. Uh, and it was called St. Peter Claver, up and through third grade. Okay. And after third grade, because of integration, the integration movement, uh, the state took the St. Peter Claver Elementary School because they owned it. Mm. And so they turned it into a public school. So St. Peter Claver became only a high school which forced the Catholic kids who were African-American Catholic kids who were going to the Catholic school to go to public school. And so for two years, I would have remained in Grand Coteau in the public school. And then the 
seventh, my seventh and eighth grade year, I would have had to have been bused to the public school across the way, which was the town next door in Sunset. And because my mother was a Catholic and felt as though she wanted all of her kids to have a Catholic education, then she looked for other opportunities for us. And it came about that Sacred Heart was opening or offering scholarships to the African-American kids. And so that's how I migrated from the elementary school to Sacred Heart. Did you have uh, friends or other kids who joined you? Yeah, there were probably when I, there were girls, young African-American girls that had gone to Sacred Heart before. Hmm. Um, but it was usually one or two girls. Um, and at this particular time, they were looking for a larger number. And so I would think it was about 25, 25 of us that left the public school system and went into uh, the Catholic school. How was that transitioned for you? Well, I had a lot of friends that I'd been going to school with. And unfortunately, only one of all of my friends in my grade made the transition with me. But my friends of my mom uh, were who had girls near my age, either a year older or two or three years younger. Uh, she was familiar with them from the Catholic Church. And so when they were looking for girls, she could suggest certain families who had kids in that range that might be interested. Also, there were African-American women that worked at the school in housekeeping and cooking and various different trades. And so their kids went there as well. And so I would say off of my street, there were probably seven, seven of us. And then the other girls came from other parts of Grand Coteau and the neighboring town of Sunset. It sounds like education was very important to your mom. Yes, I think it was. Um, she had, as a young girl herself, she had gone to Sacred Heart. When the convent was opened and they started the school, at some point, and I can't, I don't know specifically when, but at some point they offered school for the colored children or the African-American kids. They were, col they were considered colored at that point. Uh, so my mother and her sister went to school there. She had seven brothers and there were five girls and her brothers went to school there as long as the school was open. Uh, I can remember my mom saying that before she was born, that my grandmother and grandfather actually lived on the property and my grandfather worked in the dairy. And so they had a long history, a much longer history with Sacred Heart than I was aware of and at the time knew of. How did you make your way in the school with that transition? Well, it was definitely different. Uh, there was more structure, a lot more structure. Uh, we were in a situation where we were going, changing classes in the public school system and even the African-American Catholic school, uh, we were generally in one class and, you know, we changed subjects, but we didn't move around the school from class to class. So changing class was interesting. 
Uh, we had a gymnasium and our athletics programs. We actually dressed out, you know, we changed our clothes, got in gym clothes for PE. Uh, we had a very large cafeteria with excellent food. Uh, and most of those ladies were people that we knew. Some of them worked in the cafeteria. Mm. Uh, just being in an environment, a diverse environment or a mixed environment at that time was new for me because I had primarily gone to school with all black kids until the integration movement. Did you find uh, at the school that there were groups, organizations, like ways for you to be, to, to find a, a way to offer who you were in a new school? Initially, uh, we were all pretty standoffish, you know, in new environment. Uh, a lot of the kids were much wealthier than we were. Uh, and we were given girls that would mentor us around the school and kind of handheld us for, you know, somewhat of a time until we got acclimated. Um, I had not been in an environment where there was athletics. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a lot of cousins who I lived near. And because I was the youngest of my own family, I was the youngest girl in my own family, my sisters were 11 years older than I. So by the time I got into grade school or middle school, fifth, sixth grade, my closest sister was in college. And so... I was pretty much, you know, not the only child, but I grew up pretty much by myself. So getting involved in activities on campus was always something exciting for me because it meant that I could stay after school and I wouldn't have to go home and do chores. <laughs> and so at the first, at the first sight of that, I decided I'm going to join every team there is. <laughs> I don't have to go home. Uh, that was kind of my motivation initially. Hmm. You say initially. Did you have some measure of success in your athletics? Well, elementary school was, you know, we, we played. We played a lot of basketball. Hmm. We played a lot of, not as much volleyball, but a lot of basketball. And... Uh, I remember the basketball coach, um, you know, looking at some of the younger kids to see if she could mentor them into, uh, you know, depending on how long they stayed there, into better athletes. And so I think I made the varsity basketball team maybe in eighth grade. Now, certainly... I didn't get much play in time, <laughs> but just being on the team, having a uniform mm. was uh, the biggest excitement of all of it. I think <laughs> the volleyball team was a little bit different. I probably started in seventh grade and I remember when I returned home for my coaches, volleyball coaches funeral, I let the cat out of the bag and, it was funny because I said, well, you know, I didn't get very much playing time, but I certainly did a whole lot of babysitting. <laughs> uh, and with my sisters being older and having kids, I was accustomed to being the oldest one in the house on the weekend. So I did that job pretty well, I think. <laughs> hmm. You have had 
through your your mother and through your grandparents and through you, you have um, a long and rich and varied connection to the academy in Grand Coteau, but you found out that your history is even longer than that. That is correct. Can you share a little bit about what that history is and how you came to find that out? It all started with an article or information, I think, that was gathered about the Jesuits being uh, involved in slavery Mm. and the selling of slaves. And so when the nuns found, when they realized, the society realized that they then looked at themselves, investigated themselves and said, were we complicit in slavery as well? And when they went back and looked at their own history, they realized that once the property in Grangato was awarded to them, that to be actually build the school itself, they were going to need labor. Mm. And the only labor there was, was slave labor mm. in 1821. And so at that point, they procured slaves for the helping of them to build the school. Mm. And in doing so, when they traced the names of the families that were involved, they realized that maybe some of the elderly people located in the town would have some idea of what had occurred earlier. And so they started to talk to older uh, members of the community. Uh, well, my aunt, who lived in, still lives in Grancato, still lives in the same home that her parents bought wow. many years ago. My mother was born in 1927. My aunt was born in 1924. So I'm making the assumption that it was somewhere around that time, mm-hmm. 24, that they were able to purchase a home. Uh, and so they moved off of the Sacred Heart property with their family. And my aunt still lives in that home. So they went around town and they started talking to older people. And my aunt was not at all interested in uh, reliving her history. And so she told Sister Maureen Chiquin, they told her, or they, when she talked to them, she says, oh, well, my, my niece is always asking me about that. You should give her a call hmm. uh, about our history. And so she gave Sister Maureen my cell number. Mm. And I think she probably called me maybe four or five times because I didn't recognize the number. And so I didn't answer the call. (laughs) Uh, Shortly thereafter, I would say about a month, month or two later, my aunt asked me if I'd heard from her. And I said, no, you didn't tell me anything about that. She goes, well, I gave her your number. I said, yeah, but I don't answer numbers I don't know. So she gave me Sister Maureen's number. And the next time she called me, I answered the phone. And mm-hmm. So we had a long conversation about what, what, had, what was going on, what was happening, and what type of involvement I could uh, Or how could I get involved? My mother's surname 
uh, or my grandmother's surname, Eglin, was one of the names that appeared on the list of people that had been bought and enslaved by the society. Can you can you tell a little bit about what the event was that you were that you were planning? Well, basically, uh, I met some of the nuns uh, locally here. Sister Irma Irma Dillard, mm-hmm. her and Sister Maureen Chequin, they were planning the event, and so I I didn't know a whole lot about it in detail, but because there was a sense of my family being a part of it. Also, me being an alumni of the school, I decided it would be something interesting to do. Mm. And so I got involved. So the committee was to return to Grand Coteau, inviting members of families that may or may not be a part of the original African people brought to Grand Coteau. Mm. Now, they, there were other people there that could trace their heritage back to the actual initial slaves, but most of those people did not live in the town of Grangato. And your work in planning that event, was that sort of like your, your adult reconnection to the mission of the society? That's correct. I live in Hayward, California which is probably about 40 minutes from the Oakwood Retirement Home for the Sisters of the Sacred Heart and the Atherton campus. And in getting involved in this, it led me to go and visit some of the retiring sisters Hmm. of the Sacred Heart. And so as a result of that, uh, it just got me reacclimated with the, the school and with the religious and getting in, you know, the desire to get involved in this project. And you were able to meet up with some of the religious of the Sacred Heart who had taught in Grankato, weren't you? That's correct. Um, some of your former teachers? or One of my teachers, Jackie Martin, was instrumental in relocating Sister Mills to the retirement home in Oakwood. And so Jackie would come periodically to visit. And when she did, she'd call me up. And so I would go and visit her on campus. And sometimes we, I'd go and pick her up and just give her a break <laughs> and mm. go out to dinner or something like that. But the very first time I went, I wasn't sure who was there. And we had a huge gathering because it was actually six nuns that I had been taught by that were there so we sat in the garden for probably about two three hours and I noticed that Sister Jenkins was there and Sister Jenkins was one of the most um, vocal sisters and at the time the only African-American sister that was at Sacred Heart when I was there and so we often referred to her as the singing nun (laughs) And so when she came, 
<laughs> when she saw me, I don't know if she quite remembered who I was, but she says, darling, I can't remember your name, but I know I must have taught you. <laughs> oh. And I said, sister, I credit you with my basketball skills. And she goes, you do? I said, yeah, because I couldn't sing a note. And so whenever we had chorus, <laughs> you would say, oh, darling, I think it's time for you to go into that gymnasium and practice. So when everybody else was singing, I was playing ball in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. <laughs> it takes all different yeah. gifts. <laughs> but there's something she did remember about me because she says, oh, we have plenty of soda and all the chips you would like. And so we'd mm. walk into the cafeteria and we'd sit and not get soda and we'd sit there and reminisce and the next time I went to see her, I brought my yearbooks. Oh, wonderful. Oh, and man, we had a great time because a lot of the uh, students in my yearbooks, I knew something about them. And so she was scanned through and she'd see a face that she knew. And then she'd ask me about it and I would give her as much as I knew about it. And it was so funny because that particular day, there were other nuns who didn't get quite as many visitors as she did. Mm. And so everybody kind of surrounded around us and they were looking through the yearbooks and they were finding students who had come to Grand Coteau that they may have taught in other schools. And it was so funny. She goes, now, okay, guys, this is my guest. Can you come back with your own guest? And I was like, oh, sister, there's plenty of me here. Don't worry about it. Let them join in. So I met, I actually met some of the nuns from Duchenne in Houston. And my volleyball okay. coach had gone to Duchenne in Houston before graduating at Grand Coteau and then becoming the volleyball coach. So, you know, wow. it was just reminiscing, learning things about people that had played an important role in the development of my own life. And, you know, just really good time. Wow. You know, I felt bad that I hadn't gone to visit them sooner, but I try to get back now as much as I can. That's wonderful. I can only imagine the delight of Sister Jenkins, but also of all the other nuns to get to to see you again and go back a little bit and relive some of that joy. Well, it's the interesting thing about this is that going to Oakwood to visit with a teacher uh, led me to meet other sisters of the Sacred Heart from other places uh, and kind of revisit my life as a Sacred Heart student. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I had a much longer and richer relationship with the society, not just as a student, but as a potentially one of the first families uh, of African-American people that were instrumental in developing the school, the actual facility itself. Wow. Uh, and I think after being involved with the ancestral project, 
I felt compelled to follow it out because it was a deeper, richer information about my family was wrapped into uh, the discovery and the development of that school that I wasn't aware of, that there was even a connection there. And so it was twofold. Mm. I got to meet people that were important in actually teaching me and giving me the type of education that would further my own life and career, but also understand the development of my own family and how they reached Grand Coteau as well, or at least a part of it did. Mm. And so that, I think, in itself compelled me to stay involved and be involved in how we incorporate what happened from slavery into the current day situation that we're dealing with in this country at this point. Sure. And so you are serving now then on the anti-racism committee of the province. That's correct. Okay. Uh, the very first meeting we attended was in St. Louis. Um, and when I attended that particular meeting, uh, it was good. It was a good trip because I had been there before. Mm. Uh, as a kid playing basketball, one Christmas, I think it was Thanksgiving or Christmas holiday, our basketball coach took us to St. Louis mm -hmm. to provide a camp for the St. Louis basketball team at Villa Duchenne. Um, at the time, our coach was Gail Montalvo, and she had started a basketball camp at Sacred Heart. It was called the Stars of Koto. And so one Christmas, we somehow, Gail, uh, was able to talk to the Duchenne, Villa Duchenne School, and we traveled in our little yellow bus to St. Louis, uh, lived in the upper, one of the upper floor classroom areas. They established a dormitory type environment for us. And, uh, we, you know, went back and forth to the gym for the weekend, working with some of the girls and hosting a camp as we would have in Grand Coteau. Huh. Pretty interesting. I should say. Yeah. And when you went back to Villa Duchenne? Uh, we lived at Villa in the cottages, and then we were, uh, we were carpooled to the provincial site. Okay. So I'd get in the mornings, I would get up and walk around the campus and kind of get a feel for uh, where we were, where I had spent time as a kid. Mm. Uh, beautiful campus. It, and it, the funny thing about it is it brought back memories because Grand Coteau was a country town in a, in a rural area school. So for all the girls that went, it was uh, amazing because when you compare Villa to Grand Coteau, they were leaps and bounds ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, the kids came to school in chauffeured car, chauffeured limousines. And I can remember we're sitting in the windows up at the top of the building go, whoo, 
with these kids? Where are they coming from? They got chauffeurs. We ride school buses, <laughs> you know. So it was really different. Once we got on the basketball court, we were kids again. And so that didn't make as much of a difference, but we did see the difference in um, the not the quality, but the economical side of living, so to speak. I know at the meetings that you've had of the Anti-Racism Committee, several people have done presentations on different questions that have come up. And one of those questions was, what is your greatest hope for the RSCJ family as a result of this meeting? And I would ask you that same question, but slightly differently for our conversation now. What is your greatest hope for the RSCJ family as a result of the anti-racism work being done? And are there approaches or strategies you might suggest based on your thoughts and experiences? Well, first, I think that the anti-racism work is important not only for African-Americans in this country, the United States, but also for all citizens of the U.S. I think that it is important that it starts somewhere. And I am proud to say that I'm a part of that family, the Society of Sacred Heart Family, that is taking on this issue. Um, I think it's brave. Mm. I think it's bold. And I also think that it's in line with what the society's mission is. But, and, and, and but's not the right word, but what I think is important is that we broaden not the scope as much as we broaden the participants. I find that um, in the last two meetings I attend, it was primarily alumni, the Sisters of the Sacred Heart, and teachers that taught in the schools. But a very limit, we were very limited in terms of alumni as well. Uh, of different nationalities, of different uh, races. And I think if you're going to deal with racism, it involves all the races. And I find that we're limited in the diversity of the people on this committee. And so if we're going to make headways in ending racism and developing a more diverse group of people that govern this country, the U.S., then we have to incorporate more people. We know that most of the power in the United States is in the hands of white, of European descent males. I don't see any of them on the committee. Uh, so that perspective, uh, their perspective is not and maybe it doesn't need to be their perspective, but their voice needs to be there. And they are important because they, they need to hear our voices as well, or our experiences. 
And I think it's a tough line to cross because your mission is to educate children or educate young adults, well, young children. And, but the children that you're educating, they have fathers. And so in a male-dominated environment, when it comes to politics, when it comes to power, when it comes to the private sector CEOs, there's not a whole lot of diversity there. And so I think they need to be melted into the fall or brought to the fall as well. Uh, and I think at that point, we're going to start making headway in understanding the issues and how to resolve them. That's a big thought. And that's a powerful thought. And that's, you know, I, I, I see it everywhere. I see it where I work. Mm. I see it in my community that I'm working in. Uh, and I think that as we begin to embrace our diversity and the value of our diversity, uh, what that brings to all of us, being able to reach, as the president speaks about, reach across the table, then you have to start with developing relationships. Being a student of the Sacred Heart, when you got on campus, you were a student first. Uh, mm. I'm certain and I'm aware that in some cases, everybody wasn't pro integration. But once you've worked with someone, you've suffered with someone, you've enjoyed the fruits of the labors of, you know, the collective, uh, your attitude changes. And so going back to Grand Coteau and being a part of my alumni meetings, uh, alumni events, uh, it was just like old times. And it was a comfortable environment because we knew each other. We'd lived together. We'd slept in the same dormitories together. We'd traveled on the same buses together. We'd lost together. We'd won a lot together. And so it <laughs> makes you feel comfortable, you know, with people's value. Uh, that was a totally different story once I left that campus. I think I learned more about my culture as an African-American uh, by going to school in San Francisco. I had never been exposed to African-American studies until I went to San Francisco State. Uh, or people that were African-American people that were a part of the movement uh, in San Francisco. And so I got that piece of it, too, when I moved to the city, because, of course, uh, we had sit-ins in Sacramento when they were cutting the school budget. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it was, a, it was a different part of my life uh, that I learned to accept and incorporate in my own being. Uh, not something I would have learned in Grand Coteau or at Sacred Heart. We didn't have those uh, opportunities. And I think as a result of being there and understanding 
what the plight of people in the city are, it just broadened my horizons and it broadened who I was as a person. Uh, I am very glad that you have brought your person to our podcast (laughs) and to the society and are still connected and offering your gift and your thoughts and abilities. And you are, just for the record, still a star of Koto. Star of Koto. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I went on my walk this morning and (laughs) I wasn't starring very well today. (laughs) Mary Charlene Rhodes, thank you so very much for your time and your presence on the podcast for the sake of... You're welcome, Kim. Thank you very much for having me. A special thanks to Mary, and a big thank you to you, our listeners. To learn more about the Society of the Sacred Heart's History with Enslavement, the 2018 Gathering of Descendants in Grand and our ongoing reconciliation work, we invite you to visit rscj.org slash history dash enslavement. Again, that is rscj.org slash history dash enslavement. Thanks again for listening. I'm your host, Kim King, and this has been For the Sake Of. You can subscribe to For the Sake Of on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For the Sake Of is a production of the Society of the Sacred Heart, United States, Canada Province, supported by the Formation to Mission Committee. It's produced and directed by Aaron Everson, Music written and produced by Eliza Lynn. Colleen Dolly is our production consultant. This show was mixed and edited by Noah Levinson. For more conversations on faith, life, and what it all means, visit rscj.org slash for the sake of.